Welcome to Discography's Private Press, the Patreon-exclusive podcast that takes buried treasure one step farther. This treasure's buried so damn deep, there's practically no way you or I will ever find it in our lifetimes. Not at least in its original iteration. And so that's if music is your thing, and I mean, for Christ's sake, look at us, of course it is, then you're not going to experience any more value for your listening dollar than with this series. One thing we can all agree on in here, our favorite dessert is definitely mint, but we'll settle for near mint in a pinch. I'm Dave Gebro, And I'm Paul Montgomery Major. Is that really the thing? That's the thing. That's pretty fucking cool, that thing. In this episode of The Private Press, we'll be lifting the lathe on the we-don't-even-know-how-many-copies-were-made of Stonewall's eponymously titled 1976 Private Press LP, and I'm going to just say it, and Masterpiece. You know what? Uh, Usually we talk about and kick around uh, ideas of things to talk about, but we didn't do it for this one, and I'm I'm glad we didn't. We get to organically find it. But I will say, Paul, that in my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, what was the very first moment when punk was invented? And, you know, the concept of Dave Davies taking a razor and slitting his amp open, that seems like a good guess. I actually tweeted that, and... Dave Davies uh, sent back a tweet saying thank you, which was unbelievable. Uh Yes, I would agree. Uh, You think that was it? I don't think you can say there was one moment because so many things are going on, so many places. You can make various arguments, but the actual physical fact that that was the most explosive, aggressive rock music to the time, mix that with uh, him slashing (laughs) the speaker. Right. image is like okay this is punk i mean slashing their amplifiers <laughs> it's it's like right the aggressive the perfect act of- image yeah. like and, and genius like wanting to get more distortion more aggressive sound in the in the music and resorting to uh messing with technology there to to achieve that to, you know before even fuzz boxes <laughs> right he didn't even know if, if it was going to work or even if his amp would continue working uh, as a physical object after he did that. When you hear you really got me in all the day and all the night, those are the most aggressive, like leaning into the future sounds that, you know, I would put the punk there because you had wild ass rockabilly and things going on. But the attitude and the chord changes being so heavy, prefiguring metal approaches and all that, uh, that, you know, for me, that's that's the flashpoint. If, if I was going to, you know, mm, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, love, I love that those guys, even though they prefigured so much of that, you know, raucous insanity to come within a few years, they were getting dressed up and doing fucking music hall type stuff. Right. Yeah, always uh, ahead of the game. That certainly was. I mean, in the heyday of psychedelia, not that many people were, uh, you know, getting sucked into that. And they went the opposite direction. When everything is that way, they're they're in the serene countryside, uh, cherishing and promoting the values of life and community. And, and it's and, their best work. Et cetera. It's like taking the, the past in this time when everything was all about being new, what's the newest innovations, you know, I am the walrus, all this kind of things going on. And, and, and they're sort of like 
standing back from the forest and not getting blinded by, you know, one tree. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Yeah. And what it did is it made them forever a cult band, because when you start singing about Village Greens, um, no matter how good the music is, the message is completely lost on America, especially after that recording band that they picked up in 65. They forever consigned themselves to the same record bins that we're talking about here on the private press. That's right. In fact, uh, that's how I got the uh, early Kinks albums. They were all cut out deletions because they had those hits. And then some years later and soap opera, schoolboys in disgrace. That's after my time with the band. I got all of the early Kinks albums up through face to face in, in cutout bins for like 50 cents sealed in Kmart near my house. Yeah. And the, uh, they were banned from the U.S. They, they disappeared, you know, over here until, yeah, until the comeback with Lola. But uh, I mean, face to face is when it all, as far as them being an album band, one after the other after the other it just is non-stop and i actually think the most overrated one in the whole series is lola yeah there are some tracks that i do not enjoy there then again some of my all-time favorite pink songs are on there but it's 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 not cohesive like face to face which is a perfect album to me you know it's uh, i just don't like people who are successful in the music business making concept albums about how terrible the music business is look it, obviously it's it's known for being a shitty business but it just feels like a little bit petty he he's a famous asshole though yeah and he's a brilliant songwriter once they went to rca i was digging some songs no look muswell hillbillies is a is a crucial kinks record you gotta have the whole thing yeah for me it's half and half you know but but that's in light of where they had been before so my standards right. were, were really high so the staying power was less for me well this turned into a show about the kinks which is great because i love the kinks let's also talk about stonewall <laughs> yeah i think uh we should shift gears now into stonewall and uh i think the crucial thing to put up front is uh how this album came to be talking about the tax loss label morris levy go for it just just go for it man it's a major record it's a huge record it is the crown jewel of the tax loss lps uh and the tax loss lps in this case morris levy who uh the gangster in the uh, sopranos was modeled okay. on the owner of roulette records basically genevieve family connected also paul please, guy. <laughs> please also throw out some of the associated records that are in your book feel the music uh, one of which i think is a another masterpiece which is the fallen angels right that's on yeah on roulette particularly yeah the second album incredible uh, yeah so if there's any associated records that you also so uh, recommend and we should probably do a whole series or show on this yeah, yeah that would be a thing running across the most crucial tax loss albums and uh tell us the whole thing man the deal was uh tiger lily records was not intended to be a success it was intended to be a tax loss so they could funnel and launder money through this label by putting out a bunch of records that they had no intention of selling. In fact, a number of the records that came out on Tiger Lily were demo tapes that were sent to Roulette Records. And the bands, like, uh, they didn't even know the record 
came out. One of them is called Crack Hand of Doom, an obscure sort of progressive record. Can I, let me yeah. ask you. Let me ask you a quick question here. So, is he attempting to make records that are not good, so that uh, you know, God forbid, they're not discovered, or is he just not even paying attention to quality? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a moot point. He's just putting out records to manufacture them, do all the paperwork, claim huge tax losses, and all, all these uh, records that are put out to scam the IRS, and that's the tax uh, loss label modus operandi. There are a few records on Tiger Lily that actually the artists did know and uh, they came out. There were a few things that uh, had some more visibility, but almost every other record on the label, and there are dozens and dozens, were just made for that reason. You know? And most of them, they never made it even into stores, except uh, Morris Levy also owned a record chain called Strawberries on the East Coast. Oh, uh, yeah. And That's uh, it. That's him. Tiger Lily albums would turn up in the you know, the cheapo sections of the strawberry chain. That was a, that was a big chain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was roulette records, Morris Levy uh, with his wow. tentacles and various angles of the music business. This is yeah. the guy, a lot of the big hits, I can't think of specifics now, but big hits that, uh, we're on roulette. He would also make sure that he got a credit as one of the composers, even though he had nothing to do with it so that he would get, that money <laughs> yeah so so it's a scam thing and uh stonewall themselves did not know the record ever came out until record collectors finally broke through the them many years later mm. and their story was they had a shifty manager named jimmy goldstein who had the studio that they recorded it at was working them and telling them he was shopping the record around, nobody's interested, nothing's happening. Basically, the tapes ended up with Morris Levy. <laughs> and the record was made. They didn't know it. It was recorded in 1972, not issued until 1976. They were astonished <laughs> that that ever happened. In fact, uh, I think the drummer of the band said uh, when he found out about it, he actually did get a copy of one of the boots of the record. So he would actually have a copy. So they never even saw copies of that record, never knew it existed. All they knew was for six months, they had a benefactor who gave them unlimited studio time over those six months. They spent enormous amounts of time jamming in the studio. They didn't have songs quite ready yet. They were jamming and then pulling out good bits and then piecing together as a unit, all four members of the band, the songs. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those great stories where a band decades later find out everybody loves their record and they had yeah. all given up on it. You know? And given up, I mean, they didn't even know that it was a thing at all anyway. Nothing happened. They played a few gigs and stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about the guys. So we got Bruce Rapp on vocals. We got right. Ray Dynaman, either yeah, Dynaman or... Yeah. Dynaman or Dynaman. Uh, okay. I was wondering how to pronounce that too. I think probably Dynaman on guitar. Uh, <laughs> Robert DeMonte on bass and Tony uh, Asalti on drums. It's a very valuable record. So uh, you said in your book, which your book is freaking amazing, Feel the Music, the Psychedelic Worlds of Paul Major. You got your copy for a thousand, two thousand bucks. No, sold it for two thousand. Actually, I should talk. Oh, right, about right. 
how I got it because that is uh, one of those record collector detail things. Uh, Do it. I got this record. This was when I was getting boxes from all over again. And right when I was typing up a catalog going off on my trip, I had all these records and I wanted to get as many in as possible. And I had gotten this record in a trade, most likely from somebody. And it was uh, sitting there. And so I, I put it on a little bit. And I was very much into the real people, psychedelic, other dimension thing. And I sampled it, but didn't really listen. And I know my mind was singing, oh, okay, this is hard rock. This is not my bag at the time. So I put it in one of my catalogs for $60 set sale. Then the catalog went out. And then as the catalog's in the mail, I'm thinking, oh, I better recheck a couple of records, you know, here and there. The catalog starts hitting. Nobody's asking for the stone wall. And I put it on, giving it its time. And then realize, oh man, this record is a monster. I just was not in the frame of mind when I played it to realize it. I jumped the gun and said to myself, ooh, I'm so glad somebody didn't buy that record. <laughs> and I pulled it then, you know, uh, as the catalog was getting around. No, I'm keeping this. And it hit me then. It's one of the greatest hard rock records ever, ever made. made. Ever made. Forget about private press. This is absolute fucking top shelf 1970s bluesy hard rock with a sneering Detroit proto punk attitude. It's clearly, you know, one of the links on the chain of punk music. Clearly. Oh, yeah. The attitude with the vocals is totally like that. And it integrates even little what would be called progressive moves in the arrangement. It doesn't batter you over the head with it just enough. Like Paul said, it was 1972. You know, this is actually a bootleg album because it wasn't I don't even think it was intended to be a record. They were just recording the songs that they had. Right, right, right. Exactly. Right. So uh, Jimmy Goldstein ran uh, a, a recording studio in Manhattan. He offered the group free studio time if they'd be willing to record after normal hours. So before the sessions, the Stonewall guys would smoke a ton of hash, show up to the studio where they'd smoke a ton more with Goldstein. And then with Goldstein on keyboards, they'd start recording. They would jam for hours, then use the best sections as the basis for the songs. That's exactly the way it happened. It's interesting to me too, because uh, with uh, my band Endless Boogie, that's sort of how our songs come across. We never sit down and write a song. We have a riff, we jam, then the songs emerge in a similar process, uh, organically from playing in the moment rather than being preconceived. And then they get tarted up, <laughs> which is the case here. They they got all the, all the ingredients emerged spontaneously and then they put it together yeah i mean that's that's precisely what happened it is like a supernova this thing just exploded out of these guys and uh it's friggin' fantastic let's talk about the music i mean it's reissued uh, at the wazoo and well well worth having this this record i don't i currently do not have a copy but i definitely want one speaking of that there were the various issues but permanent records in la now yes that's legit issue so that's the one to get and it is available it's the place uh, yeah you know that. no age who's going to be on the program coming up doing uh jesus lizard they just did a a record signing there for their new one let's talk about the music here right on is the first song it's my favorite 
It's my favorite one on the record. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the uh, the attitude, the fucking sneering, dripping with, uh, you know, with that punk attitude, like New York Dolls sort yeah. of thing that we're familiar with, both with the vocals and the instrumental interplay and unexpected borderline psychedelia swirl in the guitar breakdown and Gregorian chant background vocals. This is just iconically good, I think. Better than right out of the gate. It yeah, uh, yeah. it's it better than, right out of the gate. One better of the than peak Aerosmith, I think. It's better than rocks. Oh, oh yeah. Better than uh, Toys in the Attic. It's perfect. It's a perfect hard rock song, and it has some unusual elements as well. It comes at you right out of the gate, even with a little bit of a country inflection, somehow right. punkified in the guitar playing. But one of the most brilliant things is it roars right in, and then it goes into a finger-picking trancey little passage where the guitar yes. ding, 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 over the top and then back to the hard rock. And then the sneering vocal is awesome. It's it, it's an ultimate opening song for a set where the band is saying, we're with you. We're, we want to reach out and touch all of you. Come yeah. on over to our yeah. shack. It's so not innocuous. And a line like, I long for your companionship. Right. You can have me hook, line, and sinker with a line like that. And then they go into the brilliant musical change about how they're feeling good, like, yeah, because of them. So it's basically a celebration of their audience. Yep. And then also at the end, not even just one sick trick out ending, but two, two, two <laughs> trick out it. endings. It's awesome. When I first started DJing that song, I had to remember that because I yeah. I, I, <laughs> I got faked out, even though I'd heard the record a million times. Yeah. I mean, they're DJing with the next record ready to go. And, and, <laughs> and I got faked out. And, and then it took me another time to get wait there's two false <laughs> it's it it's great it, with a song like this when i'm hearing a record for the first time i get nervous because it's so good and it, it's coming out immediately it's the first song so it's like how are they going to keep this up and then they do Absolutely. uh they they barrel right into solitude wonderful the creepy barrel house piano the 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 psychedelic arpeggiated guitar and the bongos it almost feels like uh those songs on sabbath records that are supposed to be the, the oh, yeah, yeah it has a heavy move on that and in fact the way solitude begins with a dun -dun -dun -bum -bum. that reminds me oddly of the eye of the hurricane fraction those little bum 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 moves except they don't overdo it they use it just as a tactic to get you in there then it sort of gets a little dreamy with the guitar picking a little and he sings those incredible lyrics about solitude about uh nature and everything that's all he needs I'm a flying by myself. I don't need anybody else. <laughs> it's it, it's it's incredible. You get this expansive sense because of the nature of the music after have, having been whipped up with right on. You're just way out on a mountaintop somewhere yeah. and realizing, oh, wait a minute, I, 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 I'm alive. I, I'm I can fly by myself <laughs> you know what i like too is uh when it goes into the double time middle part it's like you're on a roller coaster so you like the song <laughs> i love it yeah <laughs> i'm kidding and i think uh, it's perfect after the first song and one of the strengths of this album is uh every song has something different about it but it's all cohesive that's one of the rare moments on the album where you get 
a really expansive sort of hypnotic little bit of things going, but then, then they take you for the ride in the middle, you know, just, just like (laughs) it's steamrolls in the middle. I love that rhythm. It does. does. It's, it's uh, the whole side's amazing. Bloody Mary's amazing. Yeah, uh, that one is uh, with, with the harmonica flashes back to Yardbirds territory and early things like that. And it, you know, you get the bluesy thing there, but they don't do it in the. It, it totally is more Sabbath bluesy than uh, you know blues rock, which uh, generally is uh, when hard rock bands try to do blues in an orthodox way. It almost never works. It's it's it's, it's got to be taking that as a springboard and this song does you know and one of the best things too is the dynamics on this entire record incredible but in bloody mary when it goes to the park it's like it winds you up and sets you spinning like a top off again every time that little passage comes around the entire side is perfect because bloody mary doesn't end it it's outer spaced that's my favorite track if i had to pick one i love i keep coming back also to the drumming there's so much attitude in the drumming Uh you know right down to the studs this album is just glad to be alive uh it's incredible to think that they didn't even know or or care if the the tapes would actually be utilized you just hear the the absolute abandon with which they play is just oh, they're in uh, it uh they're utterly in it it's also restrained playing too the guitar playing is brilliant as well but he he doesn't do you know the showing off flash stuff it's all integral and more powerful because of it there's none of this like thing that metal leaning guitar players tend to do like or stuff right. it, it's more like, like, the, like the guitar center stuff that's more like a knife yeah <laughs> yeah yeah incredible and i love the lyrics to outer space of course as well it's just incredible when we start singing about the purple planets and the next line is white galaxy still further and higher it's like (laughs) this incredible like sense that you're going further and then the refrain where he's out in the wind and the rain the snow breaking his back (laughs) yeah it's so forceful yeah these guys have definite viking valhalla zeppelin sort of moves going on here too zeppelin being a huge uh influence on the band they loved Zeppelin for sure. And of course, in the vocals, one of the things that if I was going to boil it down, the vocals on the entire album, I'd be saying like you get trailer camp Ozzy because there are a lot of Ozzy yes. phrasings on there. But then you get the shit kicking Southern thing coming across too. like it's it's, it's like but between those poles is this unique space that uh that bruce the vocalist inhabits he's one of my favorite hard rock singers of all time bar none yeah with good reason i mean you know it's like if black sabbath never traded in their denim you know <laughs> the only misstep i think and it's not even a bad one but the first song on the second side try and see it through is not not my favorite but it's not even a huge misstep it's literally the only stylistic nod that this was even recorded in the 1960s because uh, it's sort of a jazz prog sort of a thing well it has you know a bluesy shuffle going the organ is very prominent on this song it, it it's the closest to not cutting into new territory hard rock wise it's yeah. like you hear, you hear it and you say okay they're doing sort of their take on this like 
you know, bluesy shuffle, but I, I love it a lot. And I, actually, it's one that I DJ a lot too for accessibility uh, purposes or something. It works really good. It's a little longer. The guitar playing towards the end of the track is it is some of the most on the money psych tinge blues guitar I've ever heard. I like you know too that they mention you know Uncle Sam don't summon me when i first heard the record and saw 76 i'm thinking no wait what, this record was recorded before they abolished the draft you know right 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 <laughs> and then realizing it's a tax loss label okay and then we find out it's 1972. you know this is uh i never yet allowed the discography of brian auger to uh wash over me yet and i imagine that it's like this which is why i stay away from it not bad it's just six minutes of blues i'm good atlantis back on the beam with this rock and rager and that's the most progressive inflected that riff mantis being such a theme for prog groups that yeah and the way that it's plucked on a higher string and so forth definitely inflects a little bit of progressive this actually feels moment. more like television too. it feels like uh, the build in marquee moon mm -hmm. uh, they bring it down more to the plucking on the guitar percussive sort of thing going on yeah uh, the the guitar solo is just monstrous so it sounds like it's coming apart at the seams that he's just losing absolute and total control over his hands and his mechanism until finally the tune just pulls apart and disintegrates into microdots. I love that feel. Love That's that awesome. shit. Also something of a Hawkwind tension to it as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it has that that flavor of underground. And then um, it closes with a suite. I'd rather be blind and roll over Rover. And holy fucking shit, man. I mean, this is so, it's just so intense. Even the drum solo is amazing. And I hate drum solos so do I. And here, here they they do the right move where the drum solo is a rhythmic sort of thing there's some other stuff going on the drum is soloing but it's not a guy showing off his chops which is right. the death of so many albums and why I, I hate drum solos this is crazy that there's a drum solo I love it's it's insane doesn't happen that often <laughs> yeah this album Paul it reeks of denim and bong water it's the hit album of the 70s that never was. was and the songs are hit songs, too. They're hit songs. A this matter is of not getting in front of people. Uh, yeah. If Aerosmith came out at the same time and one of the tracks on here at the same time on the same label, they could have been the band that took off. Totally. <laughs> it's just ran you realize that life is random when you hear this because this has hit album written all over it. It's, you know, if I was any of the guys in this band, I would certainly be thinking about like, you know, the cruel hand of fate. Also, one of the things that works for me is for as so many hard rock bands, the macho posturing gets intolerable here. You can tell there's a wink and a nod, a celebration of, of life or something. The attitude is like they don't take themselves too seriously, right. boosts the fun factor, just that attitude like we're really getting down join us just like the first song says they celebrate their audience <laughs> we're here to have a good time together you're just as important as we are and that that's a rare attitude in metal <laughs> or, yeah. or things became metal this is i would classify this more as hard rock early sabbaths like foundations of metal and all that too and with the way the vocal sometimes reflects ozzy and stuff i don't think of uh those early sabbath albums as metal to me they're hard rock too it's you oh. know still 
coming out of the, you know, when the psychedelic fuzz guitars of the acid rock went into a, the different direction before it, you know, all the formulas came in, before it became a uniform. Hard rock just means rock that's hard. It's open. <laughs> and so to me, I can't think of a hard rock album I enjoy more than this. And that includes all the famous ones and the unknown ones. If you're a hard rock fan without a stomach for the obscure, because you really could only give two shits about what they play for you on the radio, you still, in all likelihood, will fall in love with this record. It's just stupidly good with crossover appeal dripping from its pores. Literally, probably the only human being who could have stood in their way from achieving massive success was the guy who put the record out, Morris Levy. So what are the odds, really? Don't get it twisted. This is not a private press masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, plain and simple. Truly, five stars. Same thing, five stars. This fucking record is worth $14,100. Yep, that copy sold uh, seven or eight years ago. I remember uh, Academy Records in New York, Mike there, I had come across a copy somebody had found and turned into the store up in New Hampshire at a junk barn or something. And they got in touch with me since they knew I had the you know copy way back. So I was uh, kind of, you know, the, the guy that had it when only a couple people knew of it, uh, which I only know because I was looking through old want lists. And before my turning onto the album, the name was on a want list out of Germany. So somebody knew about it before then that was looking for it. Over the years, since uh, since I got the copy I mentioned that came in the trade box, I think you can count on one hand the number of copies that have ever turned up. And I authenticated the copy because by the time Academy had come across that copy, there were, you know, counterfeit repro trying to look like it. So I'm going to say it, Paul. There's no other record in your entire book that I'd feel more confident giving to people, uh, expecting them to love it. I think so. If you don't like it, it means you're not. It means you're a worthless piece of shit. Basically, or or, or yeah, it means you got your blinders on because this album just makes it's life affirming. If you hate this record and you're listening to this show, something somewhere got fucked up. You should not be listening to this show. Yep. 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 <laughs> so go get it. Go listen to it. Go eat it. Do whatever you got to do to get it inside you, whether it's through your ears, your stomach, it doesn't matter. These guys, I would love, not would, I, we will have a great episode with whomever is left from this band on the show. We give you that. We give you our word on that. Paul, any last thoughts on one of the greats? Just a little tidbit. Uh, I was way into the record. I eventually was involved with making a repro back in 1992 or three. And after I did that, I had a really heavy, one of the heaviest collectors I deal with, a guy down in Texas was after me for the album and me being a, a channel rather than I have to keep everything like a butterfly collector. He offered me two grand for it way back in ancient history in the 90s, which was monster money, as big as any of these records uh, had gone for then. So I took it and it currently resides. Uh, he, he lived in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is hurricane prone. So this uh, collector named Ashley Johnson built a bunker in his yard, underground waterproof bunker 
in concrete to put his rarest records in. That's where the original acetate of Cold Sun resides. He's the owner of that, the only copy of Cold Sun, Dark Shadows. So this record's so heavy, the person that has it built uh, like a nuclear bomb-proof bunker to keep <laughs> that's awesome isn't the golden dawn residing in a similar sort of a thing well it's it's uh, interconnected with the elevators and uh the code sign and so forth but uh no i i think golden dawn resides in a you know like a flood proof uh sort of a thing there's a, a similarly compulsive collector behind that record uh in any case stonewall definitely it would be on my wish list to get a copy of this thing it's absolutely amazing i want to thank paul uh from the bottom of my toshi uh for a monster addition to uh my fount of knowledge about music and for the guys who a had no idea that they were making a seminal masterpiece and then b uh that they actually went ahead and, and created this thing it truly is a magnificent piece of work in every way as i get older decades later the records that stick with me the most tend to be things like new dawn and so forth not that many balls ass hard rockers do i ever think i'm gonna get tired of this someday every time i play it i get the same excitement i got when i first realized how brilliant it is so it's it's the ultimate keeper it's the hard rock album you will never get tired of Thank you so much for lifting the lathe with us on this seminal slab of Tunalalia here at Discographies, the private press. We'll see you next week. 